This season is sponsored by The Empowered Musician. The Empowered Musician, founded by Dr. Dana Lynn Varga, helps musicians to forge their own path with pride. Dana is a fierce advocate for singers and a leader in moving the classical vocal industry forward. Through the EM website, you can read Dana's articles, schedule one-on-one -on -one career coachings, book Dana for a speaking engagement, or sign up for her upcoming affordable six-class series called Everything You Need to Know About Entrepreneurship for Singers, which starts on April 10th. The Empowered Musician also has incredible artists on staff, offering voice lessons, musicianship lessons, and both dramatic coachings and repertoire diversification sessions for singers. Voice lessons are available for a wide range of ages, levels, and genres, and their highly sought-after teachers are accessible from anywhere in the world through virtual lessons as well as eventually in-person in multiple cities. Keep an eye out for additional professional development courses such as acting for singers, body mapping for musicians, intro to jazz singing, and more. Be sure to check out www.theempoweredmusician.com. Welcome to my so-called Opera Light, a podcast for opera singers by opera singers, where we work to connect, inform, empower, and inspire musicians at all levels and stages of their career. Each episode, we'll explore a piece of the never-ending puzzle of the so-called opera life, humble brags and therapeutic complaints, as well as practical information about how this business works. Each piece helping you on your journey towards success, which we believe should really mean happiness. happiness. I'm Marcel. And I'm Elise. And we're two sopranos trying to live our best so-called opera, opera lives. Well, we are back with our next episode. I'm very excited to introduce these two women. Um, I thought we had a great conversation with them. Yeah, it was an incredible conversation. They're really taking the questions of what does it mean to be an opera company in the 21st century and be an opera company that's committed to addressing some of the big questions facing opera yeah. right now. Like, what is opera? What is opera when you put it on film? What is opera when it's digital? Yeah. What is opera when people want to watch it? <laughs> And what is opera that tells a story that means something to a modern audience? And how do we Definitely. build a company that is committed to having a viable financial model mm -hmm. that it's built off of? What does it mean to have a company that is committed to focusing on female artists and composers from underrepresented communities? Yeah. So Helios Opera was a great, great pair to have on. Yes. Yes. This was Helios Opera. They are a brand new opera company, and we had Theo Cotterell, who's the chief uh, creative officer of Helios Opera, and Adrian Boris, chief strategic officer and also resident stage director, to come and talk to us about the company Helios. I actually knew Adrian. She's a great director. I've seen her work at Madison Opera, Madison Theater Opera, I think it is. She did La Boheme. I just like stepped in and did super titles one, one day, and was a great production both of them are singers too which is cool right so it was it was good to hear the perspective of running an opera company but also knowing like how like a singer kind of plays into the whole thing and they really value singers right because they've been you know. been in the shoes and continue to be in the shoes of a singer so 
yeah, fascinating conversation. And it's so exciting to see so many singers kind of like stepping into the producing role. Yeah. And in a way that feels artistically fulfilling to them, as well as thinking, you know, in terms of a long term of how do we then build this out so that it can employ other artists and ourselves? You know, it's kind of like turning this whole conversation around vanity companies on its head, mm-hmm. right? Because traditionally, if you did your own, started your own company or were doing your own projects, it was like, oh, you did that because you couldn't make it. It's just like, no, we're at a place where we need to, if we want this industry to change, we have to be the change we want to see. Yep. And they certainly are doing doing that. And they're certainly putting a lots of lots of great efforts you know we talked about like we just said earlier what is opera and changing what that narrative is and also they're very like singer pro singer and pro the artist and recognizing that they can't make that art without the singer and then lastly like being business minded and really aiming for financial success as a company which i think is three things that are desperately needed in this industry. Right. Like financial success that equals stability, not, right? Sta- right? Financial right. stability the, so that the company can be... Not the donor model. Right. Not the donor model, or at least not the donor model in a way that means that the donors have control over the artistic expression of the company. Yeah. You know, right. which is a big conversation happening right now, you know, kind of across the industry at all levels. Because I think if the pandemic's highlighted anything for everyone at every level it's just like the money can just disappear mm-hmm. and when we rely on donors and how do we how do we make sure that if a pandemic happens again or we continue in this kind of state of stasis how do we ensure that we can survive mm-hmm. yeah fascinating we've got a lot of projects coming up this this season they just announced we'll be sure to link their information for you but we hope that you enjoy this conversation it's 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 helpful for the singer not just interesting just for anybody but i feel right. like it was it was a good conversation for singers to think about what is opera honestly and what kinds of people do i want to work with too right and what kind of stories do i want to tell and also i think almost all of us have some kind of project that we feel passionate about kind of jiggling around in the back of our brain and to talk to them and just like hear how they were just like we had to figure it out and here's how we figured it out it was a really empowering conversation um, and hopefully will inspire some of y'all to do the thing. Do the thing. Do something great. I want to see it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Thank you for coming. I'm excited to talk to you guys today. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Tell us a little bit about Helios. Yeah, so Helios is a new company and we were founded on three core values, basically, which are artist recognition, quality opera, and social responsibility. So what that basically means is that we want to produce opera that feels relevant, that's not dumbed down, but in a way that tries to be more inclusive and speak to a more modern audience who may not already know, you know, that they could love opera. And additionally, in terms of the artist recognition part, we work with many artists who are early in their career, and we really want to be a positive part of their development by providing a respectful and rigorous work environment with career support that goes outside of our process and our rehearsal room. And another key part of Helios, I think, is that we consider ourselves a business-minded company in part because we try to think with a long-term strategy and, and vision. We try to be fiscally responsible. 
and we try to be audience driven with our work in a similar way to how good businesses are consumer driven. I think that's really great. That's so important to focus on your audience. And then with this first initiative, a modular opera project, we're really addressing the question, if opera is not live, is it opera? And what can we offer the audience member that we can't offer them in a live experience? So, you know, with modular opera project, we're doing close-up videos and, you know, really diving into expression that maybe you can't see on such a magnified level in a live production. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And looking at the ways that the digital movement can maybe be an opportunity for opera instead of a threat and examining whether some of the advent of all of these new kinds of digital streaming subscription services, you know, may or may not have something to do with what some people fear is the decline of popularity of opera in America or across the world. And why can't we try to bridge that gap? A little bit. Yeah. So just to take it back a little bit, I actually met Adrian. I was doing super titles for La Boheme in New York, and there were some fabulous singers, and Adrian was directing. So I would love to like talk about, you know, your background. Both of you come from different backgrounds, and they're not in the business of starting opera companies. So. <laughs> Uh, Adrian, can you want to talk a little bit about your background? Because it's really varied. Yeah, it is. I started as a singer. Well, I started in the chorus of youth theater in fourth grade. <laughs> my Both of my parents, who are a sociologist and a lawyer, did community theater in a serious way for 10 years of my formative experience. And so instead of staying home with a babysitter, I would go to rehearsals and sing along and learn all of the numbers. And then I was in the chorus and I, you know, demanded voice lessons in fifth grade and was told that I had to wait until seventh or eighth grade very responsibly. So I did. And then I studied singing really seriously in middle school and high school. You know, I did those summer Oberlin opera programs, Westminster Choir College, did a senior high school recital, which is like, you know, that's kind of funny to think about now, but I loved it. But I also, I loved reading and writing. And I discovered directing my senior year of high school and went to Kenyon College uh, in Ohio for my undergrad, where it was all about this liberal arts approach of do many things at once, not necessarily with a career focus in mind, which I loved at the time. So I was, you know, singing roles in opera workshop, and then I was directing straight theater. And I was kind of like, never the twain shall meet. How would these combine? I don't know. And then somebody had to step in to direct Pirates of Penzance my junior year, and I just sort of impulsively was like, I'll do it. And I found, you know, that I loved being part of the storytelling in a big picture way and all of the different kinds of collaboration that went into opera directing. But I also loved being able to be sort of a steward of the community and decide, you know, how rehearsals were going to be run and what kinds of stories we were going to tell and how we were going to tell those stories. So I think that like singer advocacy has always been really important to me. And that's certainly been a theme in my career, whether it's directing, administrating, producing, whatever it is. And then in Boston, I got my start with Opera Boston, hired as the front desk person in 2008, three weeks before the market crash of 2008. So mm -hmm. very grateful that that happened. They figured out that I knew a thing or two about opera and I was promoted up a few times. And when we closed, I was artistic administrator, then went on to get my MFA in directing at Boston University, spent three years 
learning about theater directing because I wanted to learn to tell stories and not necessarily just move people around the stage. And to me at the time, you know, it seemed like that program was really comprehensively focused on that and working with designers. And then just found, even though I'd spent all that time studying theater, you know, I learned so much, but ended up applying it to opera more just because I've always felt more at home in this world, perhaps because I started as a singer and, and never really had any delusions of being a, a famous straight actor. I spent, you know, 13 years in Boston and there's so many wonderful singers there coming out of all the conservatories and non-conservatories and moving to the area as well, you know, because of the, the wonderful reputation. So I just really had a chance to get my feet wet in a really hands-on way, which is how I prefer to learn. Uh, Christy Lee Gibson of Opera Hub offered me an, a, like an associate producer job uh, right out of grad school. And that's when I started learning about producing from her and learning about press relations and things like that. And I've sort of just sort of been steadily climbing up in responsibility since then. I run Lowell House Opera at Harvard University as well, and that's a very collaborative effort with students there at administration and thrilled to be in the core producing team of Helios, which is a really collaborative effort and outfit as well. Yes, so many things. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I still like to sing. It's great to have that personal connection to the art. Yeah, definitely. Well, and to be able to like know how to talk to singers as you're directing and to know how to like ask them not to do things that would impede their singing. <laughs> yeah, well, the th I say this all the time, but the last time I sang seriously was at the New England Conservatory Summer Workshop, the summer before the pandemic, so 2019. And outside of all the musical things that I learned, I learned the myopic perspective of the performer. It's so easy as a director to see everything in the big picture and to know how something looks because you're looking at it, which sounds obvious, but you know, when you're a performer, if you're doing your job, you can really only see the person in the scene with you and, you know, maybe a foot in front of you. Mm -hmm. So that was really useful yeah. for me. Yeah, so interesting. How about you, Theo? So I don't actually have any musicians or artistic members in my family. So I have a very different background. I came to music a little bit later. I, you know, took lessons throughout high school and I probably should have started off with I am an opera singer and a soprano. And uh, after taking lessons and such in high school, I decided to apply to university conservatory and I got my degree at Manhattan School of Music. And I've I've been fortunate enough to travel a lot. I've moved every four or five years. So after university, I uh, just been singing, you know, freelancing, you know, trying to get as many gigs and after working with Adrian, I've been, you know, mulling around the idea of starting a company for quite a while. And I, I started also with my partner who is not a musician, he works, in, he's a businessman entirely. And, you know, I feel like sometimes we're given the impression that we don't have as much power over our own careers and like what we can do and what really we want to say as artists, like we have to go on specific tracks. And that's something that I've always wanted to work against. So. Two things that are very important to me as an artist is women composers, pushing women in the industry to you know, have a more prevalent role, but also stories that are poignant and relevant, which is you know, why I love new music because they're able to have stories that relate to us a little bit more. So those are two things that I really, as an artist in every capacity, try and push forward. And I also have quite a strong acting background. I was fortunate enough to work with the actor studio. I was an intern at the actor studio and I have rigorous acting training. So that's a, that's a little bit of my background. 
Amazing. Yeah, that's great. We met during the cozy fondue day that I directed at Lowell House. Theodore walked in to the audition room. I had no idea who she was. She did a fantastic audition and both Ed Jones and I were like super excited about hiring her. And then she and I found we worked together really well because of her strong acting training and the fact that we were able to be sort of in a deeper dialogue about the character. And it was a little bit of a challenging adaptation. Well, not challenging necessarily, but my production was set in a contemporary high school in Naples, Florida. Um, so everybody was playing teenagers and we were trying really hard to legitimize the emotions within that world. That's cool. I love that take. I would, I want to be in that cozy. <laughs> It was so much fun. It was, I think, honestly, the most fun that I've had as an adult in a rehearsal room. Same here. And I, I think most people would agree with that who were in the cast. We had such a blast. That's the great. guys played lacrosse. And so there were literally lacrosse sticks and balls oh on gosh. stage. I love any production that takes something like Cozy or like Boheme and, and makes it fit into the modern world. Because I don't know, I don't know if everybody feels like this, but I, I kind of assume like, if you are an opera singer now, or if you're in the operatic world, you see the connection and the parallels of how you can make sense of all that crazy story and sometimes not so not so 2021, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right. And like putting them in the modern world, I think helps make the correlation for other people to see that as well. Right. I mean, I think short of like culturally short of superhero movies, people are less likely to do like the suspension of disbelief, you know, because we've lived in the, in the, in a, you know, an arts culture that is so driven by film, you mm, know, and so like right. hyper-realism is just part of, you know, kind of the language in which the arts exist at this point, you know, but I, I love this idea of like framing it in high school. It's like, yeah, I mean, like if you set Rip Cozy in Riverdale. Oh, that, Riverdale was a chief inspiration. That, like, <laughs> I'm not afraid like, to admit it. That whole opera works in a way that yeah. it that it wouldn't if you approached it from like yeah. an 18th century sensibility. We, and we felt that it was really important for the lovers to actually be young. You know, I cannot stand, no offense to all the wonderful 40-year-old singers out there whom I love, but that particular opera does not make sense to me if people are above 35 to really have the idea of, you know, Alfonso and Despina sort of pulling their strings in a way that can kind of only happen when, when you are quite impressionable and eager to please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You guys talk about at Helios, like when we first talked a little bit before this conversation about like, you know, what is opera? It's something that I am like super fascinated by and is like a heated debate, especially nowadays. What is opera? And is opera opera if it's not live, you know, in this digital world? And I just wonder like what your thoughts are on what is opera? <laughs> <laughs> I think opera's opera if it's not live, but that's obviously, I think you could have assumed that that was going to be my answer with what we're doing with Helios Opera. But I think that where you need to think about opera differently is what you're offering the audience member, because obviously you can't give them the live sound that like rushes over their body, but what you can give them is acting in a way that you can't necessarily see very far from the stage. And I think that's a real advantage because especially this generation of singers, we're much better actors maybe than our predecessors and we can offer something additional. And when you think to the future of opera, I do think there's gonna be a certain point where younger generations won't necessarily wanna watch live opera or they might, I, you know, I'm not making any like bold statements, but I do think it's, you know, smart to think about 
a format that you can watch at home so that opera stays alive. Mm -hmm. If you had asked me the question before the pandemic, I would have said, absolutely not. It has to be live. It has to be on Amplified, all of these sort of rigid statements. But it was honestly working on Love What You Men, which was our first project uh, featuring Theo, that, and then watching the takes, you know, and, and watching the audience response to it, we were able to create, I think, this sort of new intimacy that although it was not happening concurrently with the experience of the viewer, it did feel voyeuristic and it did feel sort of like you were on the other end of a video video call and it did feel urgent and alive I and mean, intimate as Theo is saying. So those sort of electric and dynamic feelings, I felt really did an excellent job of standing in for the live experience, which sometimes as Theo alluded to, you know, you can be in row QQ of the balcony. And uh, although there is a certain energy that's created by everyone being in the same room and you're there with your fellow audience members, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's being made for you in the way that some great television and film can. Yeah. And I just want to clarify that, like, I think they should exist in tandem. Like, I can't wait to go back on stage when this is all over. Yeah. So. No, yeah, for sure. No, I mean, because it, it begs an interesting question. I mean, if you just take a, like a, the, you know, New Grove's dictionary approach to what is opera, right? Like it's it's a pretty basic definition insofar as like opera is sung storytelling with no spoken dialogue. And if we exist, like it says nothing about acoustics. It says nothing about live. It says nothing about the quality of the singing at that point, you know, the technical approach to the singing. That ambiguity can give us, like you're saying, a lot of freedom around kind of looking at the different ways we can approach the medium and it's still operatic. Like to me, it's still operatic just because it's like such heightened emotion that we're trying to communicate, like things that are too big for words we add music to. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps one of the, the major differences between contemporary music, musical theater and opera might be just that there is still some emphasis in contemporary opera writing on writing for the virtuosity of the voice and this sort of athletic approach to the voice and the abilities of the voice. But I think with the best contemporary opera, you know, that virtuosity still ends up being story driven and still ends up being a tool of expression, a tool of moving the audience, sort of as you're saying, whereas with musical theater, perhaps it is more strictly story driven, although people who don't like musical theater still walk away with the question of, well, why did they start to sing? <laughs> Well, I think foundationally, right, there remains the same, like they're, they're singing because it's something that the words alone weren't enough yeah. to express. And so then there's, there's like, okay, this, like you're saying, like the stylistic difference in terms of how, how are we approaching it vocally, the challenges of it, what are the tools that they're using in order to drive that story forward in their vocal expression? Yeah. And also this question of, you know, we talked a little bit about the accessibility of filmed opera, giving us the chance to bring it into people's households who wouldn't necessarily either have the means or the chutzpah to travel into the opera house, but also in terms of the training, you know, it certainly goes back to the way that singers are trained because, you know, I did my MFA alongside a BFA acting program and, and those kids are taught singing technique like it's breathing mm -hmm. and it's just part of their training and there's no barrier to like, you know, singing is very hard and it's a very special skill and only some people can do it. And it is approached that way in opera. And, you know, growing up, that was actually something that I really liked about it. And it made me sort of feel like I was part of this, you know, special group. But as I get older, I see, you know, how exclusive in the 
bad meaning of that term, <laughs> the opposite of inclusive, mm-hmm. that is. So I've been thinking a lot about ways that we might address that in the training. Yeah. And it, and it affects, you know, vocal writing in contemporary opera as well. Right. Yes, yes. I think that's all. That's all. I agree with everything that everybody said. And I also think about what inherently that type of, you know, writing a story that's only sung and the way that you express things are so just it's inherently so different from if you were doing a spoken text. It It just doesn't ever come across artistically the same. Like and it does lend itself to a certain style that has started to vary a lot more. And I don't know, like, how do you guys choose repertoire when you're looking for different composers? Like, is it something that maybe you find more accessible because the story or the language is more accessible? Or, well, there's... you want to speak musically? Because I feel like Theodora can speak musically and I can sort of speak. Well, we can both speak. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Please will speak. <laughs> Yeah, like musically, do you look for a certain kind of music? And I mean, some some new music can come off like super like snobby. Well, it's still a, yeah, still <laughs> still elitist, right? Like if you have to have a degree in theory to, to like understand, you know, to even 100%. begin to even like yeah. begin to approach musically what's happening, so then you can enjoy it. Like right yeah. on a philosophical level, then you're just like, is this art really, <laughs> or is this an exercise in showing off? your high level of music education. Or is it just opera? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I hope not. Well, I think, you know, musically speaking, there's that kind of like great intersect where music is accessible, but also challenging, where it's not, you know, an exercise in patience to get to the the end of the opera. So that's obviously something that we, we consider because every choice we make, we put our target audience at the forefront. And I like to think that I'm in that audience so that I can, I can relate directly to, to what they're looking for. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think what makes composers of the past so successful is that their music is beautiful. So I think when we are looking for music, we are looking for beautiful music. And of course, that's subjective. So those are the criteria that we think of. But anyone listen, keep it in mind, these are just our opinions. It's not saying you you know, you might not like it. I don't know. <laughs> Other music is not beautiful. Yeah. Or it is beautiful. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And personally, I think people do want to be moved by the human voice. I mean, I think that's sort of part of its natural mechanism. So whether you're listening to Nessun Dorma or you're listening to something that was written in 2005, the way that that is done changes. But I think Theodora and I both look for that sort of, you know, gut reaction uh, of being pulled into it and being moved by it. Story-wise, something that we always consider is this question of, you know, why this story now? Why for a contemporary audience? With Love What You Men, which was our pilot project, it seemed really urgent at the time to tell a story like that in the time of quarantine, uh, particularly at the beginning of quarantine. You know, Mm. Elle was this woman who has sort of trapped herself inside her apartment, can't make a decision, can't seem to leave, is totally dependent on her electronic devices, but also resents them for being a really poor substitute for the real thing. She's definitely struggling with her mental health. You know, a lot of people honestly question the feminism of that piece, but I think when viewed through a quarantine lens, it actually makes quite a lot of sense in perhaps a way that is difficult to face. 
because uh, she's lost touch with herself in a lot of ways and she's become completely dependent on this other person for her sense of self and her sense of self-worth. So although it wasn't necessarily an easy watch, we were gratified to hear that it resonated with a lot of viewers, you know, and this is a piece that was written by a closeted gay man, well, mostly closeted gay man in the 1950s in Paris. Um, So you can see how that reverberates, you know, across time in a way that's really satisfying. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, the feminism of the piece, notwithstanding, I mean, I think it's still a a question, you know, as a feminist, I think that we're, we're dealing with today is just like, who here hasn't been in a codependent relationship? Like we haven't really shifted the paradigm yet around what a healthy relationship looks like. Everything we're fed to that's fed to us through the media is still that like, you're going to find your one partner and they're going to be your everything. And that's like, not the reality for most people. Like you need a diverse community of people to help you. You're not going to peg all of your self-worth on your romantic partner. If you do that, like you're kind of dooming the relationship to failure. Yeah. And she pushes away friends. She pushes away other people in her life who are there. And that's, you know, absolutely a a hallmark of anxiety and depression. What was I going to say? Oh, just that I'm not a deconstructionist. You know, I don't believe in changing endings to make them more palatable Mm -hmm. to a contemporary audience. And for many reasons, you know, dramaturgically, and also it's just not responsible to present something like that and not call it an adaptation. Right. Mm -hmm. Adaptations are cool, but you should call them adaptations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. This season, we're sponsored by Conduit Studios. Marcel, how's the technology going for you? Uh, I don't know about you, Elise, but I am stressed out about tech on top of everything else in this fucking pandemic. Agreed. Conduit Studios is a production company that specializes in high-quality video and audio capture for creatives, run by musicians who understand your artistic needs. They offer high-quality, dynamic, multi-camera performance capture, which is perfect for concerts, auditions, live streams, and more. They are in an affordable and accessible way to elevate your digital presence. You can enjoy a low-stress, relaxed environment to record in so you can focus on your art, and they'll take care of the rest. Conduit Studios is based in Southern California, but they service many clients nationwide. Visit conduitstudiosmedia.com for more information or to schedule a session. I would like to pivot the conversation just a little bit because I'm really curious about what you were saying in terms of, you know, being a really business-minded opera company. And I think that's like a super important thing to be talking about right now as so many young artists and, you know, kind of people who were in the emerging artist stage before the pandemic hit. And we've all been like so disillusioned by the way the industry has treated us all in the last year. I think a lot of people are kind of trying to figure out how to make their own opportunities, but none of us have this kind of business strategy or education behind us. And so I'd really love for you to speak to kind of what that means for you guys and maybe even how, you know, you for Helios are approaching that so that, you know, our audience can, you know, hopefully maybe take some of that home to to their own projects. Adrian, do you want to start off? Yeah, well, first I'll say that almost nothing that I've gotten or achieved in my life have I not made happen for myself. So that was a confusing way of saying almost everything that I've done in life that's cool, I've made happen Mm -hmm. for myself. Mm -hmm. I've asked, I've organized it, I've gotten people together, and we did it. And that's part of why I became a director from being a performer in part. I didn't mention this earlier, but I got tired of sitting around and waiting for people to tell me that, you know, I could be in the cast or I could do the thing. Mm -hmm. And I I have always had an instinct to organize So I think, yes, we're a very entrepreneurial company. You know, there are sort of internal business practices that we try 
to live up to in terms of not making these big promises with large budgets and getting artists involved, you know, before we have the funding and sort of not doing anything that is too big for our britches as we go. There's the respect and communication that we try to employ with the artists that with whom we work. Uh, and there's a, a new series, actually, that we're rolling out, our workshop series, which is a sort of uh, interactive version of, of Masterclass, perhaps a more egalitarian version of a Masterclass series. And some of these workshops are going to be educational workshops around how to find that entrepreneurial spirit within yourself and organize yourself and sort of ask yourself what it is that you want to get out there and do. But a lot of it is, is really a mental shift in terms of, you know, we're really brought up with the, you know, certain older people, older gatekeepers are the ones that are in charge of what you do and you have to wait for them to give you permission. And if you don't, you know, you're being, you're either being an upstart and egotistical, especially for women, we're told that a lot, or we're told, you know, you can do those things in your spare time, but they don't matter because they're not glimmer glass. They're not Marilla, whatever it is. But the thing is, uh, you know, I've never been so fulfilled, nor have I ever made such a large network for myself as I have, particularly over the last 15 months working with Helios, when I had a theater company of my own in my 20s. It's so empowering, and you learn so much from doing something directly that you would never learn from reading a book, mm-hmm. assistant directing, covering, none of that. Yeah. I think something important to think about, too, just, I, you know, I'm talking with the lens of artists you know, trying to be business minded for themselves is we are in an era where everything is online and digital marketing is so, so important. And I would say that that is, plays a key part in marketing in general, in how we think about our business and something that a singer could do for themselves is there are a ton of free certificates online that you can take. They're like 40 hour classes, but they're entirely free. And it teaches you how to promote yourself, how to make sure that all of your materials, websites, social media are working so that you can get hired. I also think that going forward, we need to, especially right now during a pandemic, you have to think a little bit outside of the box, think about what people really need, you know, do it in a disruptive way, not necessarily in line, which, you know, I think anybody who's gone to a conservatory is a little bit afraid of because I felt that when I was at school, they're like, fit in a box, fit in a box, fit in a box, which when you look at the artists who are really making, they fit in zero boxes. So I would say break the barriers, do what you want and think about who you're targeting. I would say like, if you're going to think about anything for yourself first is who is your market audience? Are they young? Are they old? Do they have money? Do they not have money? What would they want to see from you? And when you start thinking about your brand and like what you want to put forward, it makes it way easier to create your own personalized plan. Right, because then, then your message is really clear and like kind of distilled. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you don't realize it, but you're wasting your time with certain things because you think, oh, this is going to get me X, Y, Z, whoever, but they're not really interested in what you have to sell. So like, don't waste your time on people who don't matter to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So who is Helios's target audience and how... This is another one that I always think about. How do you define success when you're creating your own opportunity? Great question. (laughs) Particularly the second part. Yeah. 
<laughs> Our target audience is those probably, we would say, under senior citizen age, so we'll call it, uh, I don't know, 55 and under, who are culturally curious, who are experiential, you know, so they might enjoy one of those, like, free rooftop nights at the Contemporary Art Museum, or going to an escape room, or going to a film fest at the Brattle. These are all my phrases are Boston-based. <laughs> so they're interested in sort of off-the-beaten-path cultural experiences, but when they think about opera, they think about museum pieces that are trapped in the past that are not dynamic. But if we can reach them and show that it is dynamic, it can be socially relevant, or it can simply be transporting in a way that Netflix is not necessarily always, or it can be individualized and tailor-made and almost artisanal, mm -hmm. <laughs> then they would be very excited by that. And I, I truly feel that those people are, are out there, but opera's got a real bad rap in America. So th there is a journey to reach them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, you know, part of what we're doing with this filmed aspect is trying to reach people who, would, like, like Adrian said, wouldn't normally watch an opera. Like my entire family, they're not musicians. If I'm like, hey, check out this opera, they'll be like, are you in it? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. So that's from that, I'm able to see what, you know, their interests are and, you know, they're good guinea pigs, so to speak, <laughs> on what, what might interest them and bring them to opera in a way that excites them. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's it's storytelling. And there are so many outlets for storytelling in our contemporary culture. You know, you can go to the movies, you can watch TV, you can read a book, you can listen to an audiobook. So what is it about opera that's going to draw people in? You know, for me, I think it is the otherworldliness of it. You know, there's almost like a fantasy aspect to some really good productions. There's that exactly as you both were saying, the the punch in the gut that you get that's completely visceral that you can't get with other art forms. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to be for everyone. And we're still young enough in our journey that, you know, we have a certain number of people on our mailing list. It's a pretty good number for, for where we are. But I think as we get further down the line, it'll start being like, okay, so who came to this because they knew someone in it and, and who are we really like, you know, converting? <laughs> like, for example, a wonderful playwright actor in Boston, Melinda Lopez, was kind enough to be our first talkback facilitator for Stardust. And she, I think, you know, is, is exactly in that target. She's this fabulous, intelligent woman of color, happens to be an artist, but nowhere near the classical music field, really didn't think opera was for her. She ended up showing Love What You Men to her class at Northeastern, and then she watched Stardust to prepare for the discussion and uh, was in discussion with the artists and was just totally moved by it and really didn't think that opera could speak to her in that way and additionally didn't think that opera and film could play together in those ways. Right, yeah. and especially for audiences of color, like, yeah. of course they don't think opera's for them because they're not yeah. represented in the stories or in who's on the stage, like... And they're misrepresented yeah. if, if they're represented right. at all, I mean, if unfortunately. I, personally, if you want to point to anything with why America has a bad you know like relationship with opera you know it's because it's filled with white supremacy yeah exactly so that's one way that you can measure that you can measure yep. success which is amazing what are some other audience responses or even i think i think the biggest challenge for opera in the virtual space is eyes is is getting the audience to to grow and like getting people to make that step. I think that's the case with opera in general. So how are you finding that? And how do you measure that success? 
Well, I think it's all about networks of people. You know, we've only marketed two pieces basically so far, and the first one was free of charge. So in a way, that's a completely different exercise than marketing Stardust, which, you know, cost per ticket. But one thing that we did with Stardust that I think was really helpful was run this series of talkbacks, you know, that was curated by other artists of color who were outside of the opera sphere. So I think, I don't know exactly how to quantify it, but I think the fact that we got extended family in those artists and the networks of those artists who were sort of sat up and took notice in terms of what we were doing, you know, and shared within their networks, you know, certainly was a marker of success. We've gotten a lot of mainstream press interest, and usually the press is interested because we're, A, we're doing something different with the form and being entrepreneurial at a time when it's particularly difficult to be making work and sort of making our our very small new identity work for us in a way that it's harder for for more established companies to do. But they're also interested in the fact that we're a company that was founded in 2020, you know, at pretty much the most politically insane time, you know, of of the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we we must be politically conscious. We, We must make inclusive casting a core part of our mission. So it's a little bit different for us than companies that have been around for 30 years who suddenly are saying, and I mean no disrespect to them, but it's it's different for us the way that, you know, the responsibility that we have to conduct ourselves in an inclusive way and the opportunity that we have to do that is unparalleled as opposed to a company that's been around for 30 years that says, you know, we're changing our ways. There's there's like a negative tint yeah, to that. Yeah, right, is, right. Is it's what a different I'm saying. angle. And, you know, it's a positive space for, for us. And then exit interviews with artists who tell us that they had a really positive experience, especially on our second production, which was the first production where we invited people in from outside the core producing team. That was really gratifying. That's great. Yeah, you talk about being a singer-driven company, which Marcel and I think is really cool. <laughs> so exit interviews, what other things do you implement in, in Helios to fulfill that mission? Well, something that's very important to us is that, you know, obviously we are working on a pretty tight budget, but we make sure that everybody is paid. And we also provide skill-growing opportunities, you know, First of all, giving mics to our singers, teaching them how to use it um, so that after this production, they can go on or any production that we would work on with them, they could go on and, you know, take what they learned and use it for themselves. And then open communication so that, you know, our singers are feeling comfortable at all time and, you know, just that, you know, you know how it is. Sometimes you're like very uncomfortable with one thing and you just don't feel like you can approach the people at the top with your concerns. So we want to make sure that everybody feels very comfortable. Yeah. And transparency too about the fees, you know, obviously like we are where we are in terms of starting out. So it's not a king's ransom and I'm not going to talk to an artist about you know, what other people on the team are making necessarily, but I will talk to them about like, this is a 15% increase from the stipends that we were able to do last time because we made this amount more in ticket sales, you know, so that they really understand it in terms of the fact that we're trying to respect them in terms of the ecology of the, the organization. And we also, because we're a digital company so far, provide pictures and video for free. Some companies charge for that. We don't do that. You know, I would drop everything to write 
a recommendation for Victoria Davis, for example, you know, once you're, <laughs> once you're, once you're in the fam, you're, you're in the fam and we don't sort of, you know, forget about you until the next casting opportunity. And then these workshops, again, I'm like workshops, <laughs> but they will be, you know, lo low cost opportunities to learn some really practical skills. And we consider those workshops, you know, just as much of an important part of our season as the programming that's coming out. Yeah. Exciting. So what is coming down the way for you guys? <laughs> so we have two projects. I'll talk about the first one and let Adrian take um, the second one. But the first one, we're working on the title currently, but it will be starring Jasmine Rice Labeja, who is a drag queen and opera singer, studied at Juilliard, and it will be a filmed version. She'll take arias and sort of work them into a story. So classical arias, and it will sort of have like a silent movie kind of vibe to it, obviously besides singing. Um, and I promise you it's going to be a very fun time and we will be in June premiering it for Pride Month. Oh, awesome. So this isn't really necessarily one story. It, it I so, don't know, help me out. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, it'll, yeah, it's an arc. It's an arc. That... It's a love story arc that uses classic soprano rep to tell like a, a queer love story that ends up being a queer empowerment story and it'll experiment with Jasmine's different modes of visual expression as herself and then her costumed makeup self as uh, sort of as a, as a journey from A to B over the course of of maybe 20 minutes and maybe three three or four sort of battle acts arias <laughs> that's awesome and is that something that you guys curated as a team or did you work with her or it's yeah it's happening it's happening now yeah we're we're working with her meaning like when you choose that uh, she brought the project to us okay oh cool uh, is that right yeah yes so it's a, it's evolved as talks have gone on so that's why i'm not making any definitive statements for you yeah. <laughs> that's okay that's okay no it's it's good to see the process that i mean that's like out of everything you said that like having to sing or have a, a say in the artistic like direction of the production is such a oh yeah I mean oh and we love that we love pitches and it was the same too with Victoria I, I would say you know with John DeLos Santos who was the director for Stardust you know they had a conversation especially because Victoria is a black woman and John is not a black woman but it's only Victoria on the screen you know she had a, a lot of say in yeah. Just the way that she was represented and That's huge. what the clothes and makeup and hair sort of meant to her. That's that was huge. really important yeah. to John. So, but yeah, we're really excited for the Jasmine piece because Jasmine is fabulous. And I think she's going to be one of the faces of Pride Month, yep. <laughs> which is, which is just phenomenally exciting. And I, you know, personally am, am really excited about some of the things the piece might do with regards <laughs> to gender identity in opera. And also Jasmine is Korean American, and I think has thought a lot about the Asian identity in a lot of opera stories. So again, we can't be too like definitive. It's going to X, Y, Z, but there's a lot of fertile ground, mm -hmm. awesome. both in the sort of light can't be dragged territory and also in the the more exploratory area. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. exciting. Yeah. And the, the season is, is called Modular Opera Project 21 or MOP 21. We think there's something significant about the fact that we premiered our first season in 2020 in a year where 
most companies were not premiering seasons, you know, and, and now it's it's 21, which is sort of essentially in some ways a continuation of, of what went down in 2020, but also represents, you know, a new beginning and, and new opportunities. So the second piece is a contemporary comedy with libretto by John DeLos Santos, who directed Stardust and written by composer Christopher Weiss. It was commissioned by Washington National Opera in 2015. It's had nine productions since then. It's called Service Provider. It's a four-voice opera basically about what happens when you can't put down your cell phone and see what's going on right in front of you in your relationship. So we Mm. think it's a really nice continuation of the themes of Love What You Men, you know, with a much lighter brush, which I think people are like really ready for right now in 2021. Whereas in 2020, we were a little bit less shy about being like, look at yourself, look at your reality. (laughs) And here it wants to be a little bit more like, let's come together and, and have a laugh about this thing that we're all sort of struggling with. But yeah, it's very raunchy, fun, contemporary, you know, riddled with text speak, but also kind of examines this overarching question of, you know, why is it so hard to be present and what, in what way does technology make it easier to ignore things, you know, that are problems in your life and your relationships or just to, to lie to yourself, basically. So I'm directing that one. Right now we plan to film it in a restaurant, which is where the piece is set. So it'll be sort of a kind of site-specific filming, you know, fingers crossed in that sense, you know, for an August filming. Really looking forward to that. Uh, So that in addition to these workshops, which will cover things like acting and editing and interviewing skills and just pretty much anything that they didn't teach in conservatory we'd like to you know we can't, I don't think we could do everything in one season but we'd like to explore in addition to our IG live series bright spots Melanie Bacalling was our first guest about 10 days ago and she was fantastic and it's a series where we engage with what we call operas change makers of which you two certainly are too <laughs> and just talk to them mostly with a positive bent you know about certainly we talk about some of the problems that you know we see in the industry in terms of gender representation and inclusivity, but also where they see positive change starting to happen and give them the chance to do some positive call-outs and just tell the world a little bit more about their work that the world might not know about. It's a nomination system, so I really like that because it gives people a chance to shout out people in their networks, and we've already learned, you know, about a lot of great work that's happening that we were totally unaware of. So that's every other Friday at 5.30 on IG Live. Yeah, I love that so many cool things it's so exciting and like it makes me like it makes my creative juices like almost myself like i'm ready to go like (laughs) listen to five new operas right now (laughs) (laughs) excellent thank you guys so much for for coming and talking with us thank you for having us thank you this is really great (laughs) thank you enjoyed it yeah so fun That's it for today. This podcast was created for all the opera singers out there getting shit done. So keep on keeping on, people. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review it to help spread the word. You can also support the podcast through Patreon, where you can get early access to episodes, merchandise discounts, workshops and resources, and ad-free episodes. And you did hear that right, people. We now have merch. Find out more about all of this at mysocalledoperalife.com. Still can't get enough of us and want to add your voice to the conversation? Join us for our weekly coffee chats every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern on Instagram Live 
at MSCOLpodcast. This podcast is produced and hosted by Elise Mark and Marcel McGurk and edited by Joshua Wise. Questions or comments? Email us at info at mysocalledoperalife.com. We are glad to have the Sparkle Twins back as sponsors for Season 3. Sharice and Sharicia Williams are identical twin sopranos from Brooklyn, New York. Their business offers mouth masks to protect you from unwanted germs and conversations, with cute phrases like, yes, I am an opera singer, and no, I will not sing for you. Check out their shop at www.sopranotwins.com shop.